This year's race for lieutenant governor is wide open, and Bev Randalls is one of four serious contenders vying for the job. The Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in St. Louis today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And our very special guest today, coming in all the way from the Kansas City area to our beautiful St. Louis studios, we have as our guest... Bev Randalls. A a candidate for lieutenant governor on the Republican side. Um, versus our kind of continuing series on getting all the statewide candidates on the show. We're actually pretty close, if you think about it, Yeah, because we've had all of the statewide candidates for, for, for governor, even Coster, although we had to use... It was backdoor <laughs> podcasting, as, as my friend Brian Bear would say. <laughs> and, but, and we've had a number, several of the uh, candidates for other offices, including lieutenant governor. We, we have had Democrat Russ Carnahan on. We have not had... Um, uh, Mrs. Randall's opponent yet, but... Uh, We're working on it. Yeah, it's but Senator Parsons, who has said he wants to do that, just so our listeners know it is coming. But, you know, you get to be the first, so congratulations well, on that. thank you. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of your background, how you got into politics, and once we get through that, we'll ask you why you're running for lieutenant governor. Well, sure. Well, I grew up down in Sykeston, Missouri, uh, which is the boot heel, uh, and I grew up on a farm down there. I'm the seventh of 12 children. Uh, my my father was a farmhand. He, that's what he did till the day he died, and my mom was a housekeeper. Uh, neither of my parents had an education, but they always told all of us that we could do anything that we wanted to do. And so as a young child, I really loved school, uh, showed an acumen for academics. And so I went on to, uh, I went graduated valedictorian of my high school class, went on to college and Murray State in Kentucky and got an English degree, ended up going to the University of Missouri for law school because I wanted to be a, law, a lawyer from the time I was a little kid. And so I practiced law um, in Kansas City. I moved there right after I graduated from law school in 1999. I practiced at the largest law firm there for many years. That's where I met my, my wonderful husband, in fact. Um, and um, But I got involved in Missouri politics about nine, nine years ago because I was looking around the Republican Party, and I thought that uh, that the party really needed to to change. Uh, and so I, I got involved writing and giving speeches about how to grow the party and how we could could bring in minorities and young people and people who had long since you know become disenchanted with the party and and draw those voters back in and and draw new voters and and in an effort to really grow the party. So. That's how I got started in, in all of this. Uh, my husband ran for governor in 2012. Bill Randall's, yeah, by Bill, the way. Yeah. In fact, I was going to mention And we that. talked about this in the green room, but what was it kind of like running in that race? Because the, there was a primary for governor in 2012. Dave Spence eventually won it, but all three candidates were spending money. It was kind of a low-profile primary for such an important office. What was it like um, being in that situation? Well, it was uh, it, it was fun on the one hand because we were on the campaign trail. I was with him the entire time. 
2011 and 2012. And so we were on the campaign trail uh, all over the state, meeting voters and talking to them. And, and he was giving speeches, and, and uh, my husband's just a, a policy expert, and he's a phenomenal speaker. So he was exciting people, and that was a great, the great component of it. Um, the, the downside and the difficulty, and I think the, the main reason we lost that race is we were woefully underfunded. Uh, Bill had never run for office before, and uh, even though we had been involved in, in the grassroots uh, acti- activities for a, a while, we just weren't the uh, we weren't the, the the party pick, so to speak. So we couldn't raise the kind of money that you really need to raise to be able to get your message out there to a broad group of the voters. Um, the he was a grassroots candidate overwhelmingly, but you have had Dave Spence, who ultimately won the nomination. Great guy. I have nothing but respect for Dave. But Dave was a self-funded millionaire. Correct. Yeah, Fred Sauer, who also got in the race, also a self-funded millionaire. Fred got in. I think he uh, he filed the last possible day of filing and essentially funded his own campaign. He didn't do a ton of events, uh, but he did put a, an awful lot of money in, in his race. I think I saw a billboard for him when he was running, and obviously now he's been very involved in getting a campaign finance-related amendment to the Constitution. But that's for another day. Continue. Uh, but uh, But— but it was uh, for us. It was ve- it was very difficult. And so what what we learned in that race is, uh, for a statewide race, you really have to have the money to get your message out in a state as big as Missouri. Because I I cannot uh, I can't tell you how many events we did. We did hundreds of events in that yes, race. Yes, I even went to a couple of them. Yes, and we were. I mean, we'd go everywhere. We'd we'd go. People would say, "You guys are everywhere." Uh, we we earned the uh, the the recognition as the hardest working couple in. Missouri politics, but no matter how many events you do, you just cannot reach the casual voters because those folks um, aren't going to Lincoln Day dinners and they're not going to to bean feeds and chili suppers and they're just going on with their daily lives and they want government out of their business and to leave them alone. Uh, So the way they figure out who they're voting for is based on TV ads and the mailers that they get. Well, let's kind of transition a little bit. Now, right after that election, you took on a key position of your own. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I did. I was already a member of the Missouri Club for Growth, which is the state's largest conservative economic political pack. Uh, I joined the board of that organization in, I think it was early 2010. Uh, but right after the uh, the 12 election cycle, I took over as chairman of that organization. And uh, and I did that until, well, until last year I stepped down to run for office. Yeah, and... In that role, you were actually, I think, in several high-profile television ads during, I think, a couple of separate campaigns, if I'm not mistaken. The first one that comes to mind is the 2014 constitutional amendment to restrict when governors can withhold money. And if and if I'm wrong about this, uh, you can smack me over the head with something. But weren't you in ads during the whole tax cut debate as well? Yes, that is correct. The year before, 2013, uh, the Club for Growth's big uh, big uh, initiative that year, our, our policy initiative was uh, to try to get a, a tax cut passed, and uh, the legislature passed it. Jay Nixon uh, decided that he'd veto it, and so I was the face of the uh, of the tax cut ads in the summer of 2013 to try to encourage people to contact their legislators uh, to get them to override that veto. And that was unsuccessful, but the next year, when the bill was changed, it was successful. That is correct. Uh, and, and I attribute that, uh, and, and I think I know a lot of people attribute that in large measure to the hard work that the Club for Growth did in really continuing to push that because we never gave up. 
Now, right after you uh, announced that you were looking at lieutenant governor, or about the same time, you also made news because you got a, a $1 million contribution from uh, billionaire financier Rex Singfeld. Um, that put you on a lot of people's radars. Um, I'm just interested in your thoughts about how that came about. And when you compare it to 2012, where you guys were struggling for money, and this time you had a million dollars from the get-go, if you want to talk about the difference. Well, uh, the thing that that happened when I, w- I decided to run for office, or I decided I wanted to, that I was very interested in, and people have been encouraging me to run for many years, um, mostly activists, but some other folks have been encouraging me to, to run, and I just wasn't interested. Uh, when I changed my mind about that, though, the first thing I, that my husband and I decided is that we would not do it if we could not get the funding. And, uh, but I didn't know Rex very well at all. I'd actually seen him five or six times in my life up to that point, seen or talked to him five or six times. So I had to go through the process that every other candidate has to go through or potential candidate has to go through uh, in, in trying to get his support. And so it set up a meeting. Uh, that eventually happened a couple of months after um, we had requested it. And just to talk to him about if I run for office, could you know? Could I count on his support? He wanted to know my position on various issues. Uh, he knew about, of course, about taxes, and, and and so he just really spent the time getting to know me. Uh, he and his wife did, and I didn't make an ask uh, of anything. I just said, if if I run, would you be willing to support? And so when we decided that uh, that I would definitely run for office, uh, my husband and I made that decision, and. Uh, we found out that he was definitely willing to support in a huge way. Did you have to win a chess game against him to get that that check? If I had, <laughs> I would not have received it, I assure you. It's it's interesting because I think that candidates that get large donations from Sinkfeld get a lot of attention for it, but he's not the only major donor who's given a lot of money to a single candidate. I think we just saw Josh Hawley get a half million dollars from, from David da- Humphreys. David Humphreys. So it's not really an unusual thing in Republican politics for this to happen. Um, and as you mentioned before, there is a pretty big difference from having a campaign that has no money running statewide and one where you have the resources now to at least run a primary and a general. But, but one of the theories has been, because Singfeld also gave – He's given a million dollars, not necessarily in one swoop, but close to it. And then when he added others to uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate Catherine Hannaway. And there has been some speculation that actually getting that large donation at the beginning has somehow hurt people's, I mean, the candidates' abilities to get additional contributions. Has that been the case with you or not? You know, I I really can't say whether or not that getting that amount at the outset made it has made it more difficult for me. I think the thing that makes it difficult for anyone who hasn't previously held office is that you don't have you don't already have a um, you know a legislative seat or you don't you're not not already in some other office. So uh, the people who already are have lobbyists who you know who are willingly going to give them contributions. Uh, the kinds of donors that that we have in in my race are the same kinds of donors that we had in my husband's race, the grassroots folks uh, and people who love you and they'll work hard for you and they can write you fifty and maybe two hundred fifty dollar checks, but they don't have five thousand dollar checks to write to begin with. So I think those would be my primary donors, uh, regardless, especially given that my that my primary opponent is a sitting state senator who has who has locked down 
all the lobbyist money. And of course he would, because he is going back to the Senate, uh, assuming he loses the lieutenant governor's race, which is what I think is going to happen. Well, since he's he's not term limited until 2018. So, but when you talk, we were talking a little bit earlier about legislative records. You don't have one. You have a different kind of record. So um, does that help or hurt the fact that you're running against somebody who has a legislative record, although on the other hand, you have more of a business-oriented record? Just And an activist record, as we talked yes. about before. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I think we all have a record. Uh, now, a legislative record is, is obviously somewhat different, but people still know where I am on the issues. And it's very easy for anyone to figure out where I am on the issues because I have been out front on things like right to work tax cuts, the need the need for more tax cuts for Missourians. I've been out front on uh, education reform and all of these other things. So I've not been shy or bashful at all in the years I've been involved in Missouri politics. So that's what my record is. And and anyone who uh, who has been paying any attention at all or who has a computer and can Google can figure out where Bev Randall stands on the issues. So it, what would you do as lieutenant governor that maybe is different from the current lieutenant governor. And like, just for our, our listeners, for a little background, the current lieutenant governor, Peter Kinder, is running for governor. This is a wide open seat. He's been in office for 12, 12 years. years. And there are specific duties you have to do. You are charged possibly with um, presiding over the Senate if, 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 you know, the Senate caucus wants you to do that. But you're also on a number of boards and commissions that are pretty important. What would you want to do with the office if you're elected? Well, I personally see the lieutenant governor's office uh, as a as a bully pulpit. I think it affords anyone who's in that office a huge platform to talk about and promote the issues that they think are important. And to me, the state's economic climate is central. I mean, we are Missouri ranks 47th in economic development, um, so that means we've got a little ways to fall, but but not that far. So I'd like to use the office uh, as a mechanism for ensuring that that Missouri creates a climate whereby businesses who are here understand that if you are a business, a small, medium-sized business, or a large business, whatever you are, we want you here, we want you to succeed, and we'll create a climate to do that. And we're also telling businesses who aren't here, maybe thinking about coming to Missouri, this is the place that you want to come and do business. You'll be able to prosper in your business, but moreover, maybe more importantly, you will be able to create jobs to get Missourians working because that's what we need. We need more people who are employed, who are doing the kinds of things that they want to do and, and being able to add to and push our economy forward. Another thing that um, is a, an official responsibility that's kind of related to jobs and economic developments is tax credits. Um, I know that the lieutenant governor has a seat on the Missouri Develop- Housing Development Finance Board. I Hopefully I got that acronym correct where they vote on low-income tax credits. What's kind of your overall philosophy towards some of the tax credit programs that are going out right now? Because the current lieutenant governor, Peter Kinder, has been a big supporter of many of them. I'm interested to hear your take on that entire issue. Well, I think it depends on, at least my understanding of where our current lieutenant governor has been, is depends on what the particular issues are. When we're talking about low-income housing and and and, um, and seniors, that to me, that's a different issue. That's always uh, that's a carve out, and uh, and that that commission is charged with making sure that people uh, get the kinds of uh, the kinds of funding that they need for housing, and that's what those particular tax credits are for. The larger my my larger view about tax credits, though, is I am opposed to tax credits. 
Uh, I'm opposed to corporate welfare. And uh, I think that as Republicans, we have to be delivering a consistent message. If Republicans are always bemoaning the welfare state and the entitlement state, we cannot say that on the one hand and then on the other promote tax credits for multimillionaires and billionaires. It is, it is inconsistent. Those two things do not connect. So I think that, and I also want to make, make clear that you look at study after study that shows that with these tax credits nationwide, not just in Missouri, the, the public rarely, if ever, really recoups the money for it. They are almost always a losing proposition. The, the uh, Edward Jones Dome is a perfect example of that. So, and, and that's an example where uh, I know Peter Kinder was the, the lone vote in opposition to that. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that what we have to do is to create an even playing field for everyone. We don't need to be giving favors to this group and then not to this group. That's why I'm in favor of creating a, a climate whereby everyone can succeed. And you do that by making sure that the tax, the tax system works the same for everyone. The education system, we're, that we are educating kids in the cities and making sure that they, no matter their, their zip code, they get a quality education and a chance to succeed. Uh, reducing the regulatory burden in the state, also primary key. We've got to do that. Um, my, my opponent, Mike Parson, this year sponsored a bill in the legislature to require uh, licensing for roofers. What, you don't need a, a license to put a roof on a house. All that does is frustrates the free market and ensures that certain people can't, uh, can't participate in that business. And it also increases the price, on, price tag on, uh, on that roof by 15%. So now that roof that would have cost you $5,000 uh, to put on cost you nearly $6,000. We just, we shouldn't have those things. When the Obama administration is, is saying there are too many licensing requirements, professional licensing requirements around the country, you, Republicans should take that as a red flag. We, we should not be doing that. That's, that's finally one thing I guess we could agree on. Now, um, playing devil's advocate, and I'm just in the case of licensing for roofers or some of the others, let's say cosmetologists or manicurists, I'm just throwing out a few. I um, mean, there are on on the, on the other side, they would say, well, we need to make sure these people may at least have minimum standards so that the public doesn't get bilked. Uh, I know in the case of some home improvement stuff, you have these guys that go door to door, especially try to sway older people, telling them. Their roof is falling apart. They need to have a new one right away, whether or not they do or not. Um, how how do you counter that, or do you think that's something that the, that the market and word of mouth and publicity can do? Um, well, Joe, the the issue there though is it assumes that this is government's role. Okay. That that and and that's a that's a faulty assumption. Uh, I used to say by liberals, but now you've got Republicans uh, in some circles who are also, also assume that we always need the government to rush in and fix something that may or may not even be a problem. Uh, there are there all are and always have been mechanisms in in the free market that control those sorts of things. You mentioned word of mouth, uh, but there are also all kinds of things that you can have certifications instead of licensing. Um, that's, what the, that's what the legal system is for, so that they could sue. Uh, bonding, uh, being bonded and insured, and, and making that a requirement. So though there are various ways that you can go about ensuring that the public uh, is, not, is not getting bilked and people aren't getting scammed, but, but the reality is 
1950, only 5% of occupations in this country required licensing. Now that number has ballooned to well over 30% and it continues to climb. No one can, can explain to me why that is a necessity and it is not free market. It is the exact opposite of the free market. I don't think that we need to, to build in protections by, by ensuring that people then have to spend money to get educa you know, education for things that they probably, in, in many instances, already know how to do, um, or to make sure that, for instance, that, that they're doing something that, say, 20 years ago didn't require a license, but now it does. It's just more government, and it's more bureaucracy. Now, are there other uh, key differences be between you and Senator Parson that you'd like to mention? Well, yes. I, I think, in general, uh, overall, as between us, I am the more uh, conservative candidate just on the my philosophy on government and government's role. Um, you know, Mike is, like I said, that that's uh, Senator Parson. That's one example with the roofing of him being more in favor of larger, uh, larger government, more government bureaucracy. Um, but I think also on uh, on things like uh, like cloning and stem cell research, uh, he has been much more, uh, much more favorable to that. Um, he actually voted for Mosira, which is um, um, which is a bill that that essentially. You know, opened the, the gateway, uh, as many people see it, to uh, the uh, stem cell research and, 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 <coughs> and. So do you oppose it? I do. I oppose Mosira. Yes, and, I do. And you okay. oppose embryonic stem cell research? Uh, o o only, I think that we can do uh, research, uh, but we, we don't need to be, we don't need to use embryos for okay. that. Yeah. So another aspect of the lieutenant governor's office is, is the relationship with the governor. Now, when Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder was Lieutenant Governor with Matt Blunt, they had a much friendlier relationship, so to speak. I noticed that Blunt often delegated a lot of tasks to, to Lieutenant Governor Kinder. In the last eight years, it's been a completely different story. I would say that the relationship between Governor Nixon and Lieutenant Governor Kinder is not very close, and well, some would it's, say it's non-existent. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, well, Kinder would say that. I've done a couple stories on it where he's been extremely candid saying it. They never talk at all. So my question is, and this the, the answer to this is obviously going to depend on who's the governor. So if you are the lieutenant governor and a Republican is governor, it's going to be a different scenario. But if, for example, uh, Attorney General Coster becomes governor and you're a lieutenant governor, can you foresee a situation where you two work together and and it's not as acrimonious as it's been over the last eight years? Well, I would hope so. I think that that is, uh, whether or not it's acrimonious, I think is also, though, largely up to Attorney General Coster, if, if he is governor. I personally think we're going to have a Republican governor, but if for some reason he is, uh, he becomes governor, I think our relationship is largely dependent on, upon him. Uh, Jay Nixon has been completely opposed to interacting with uh, Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder and, and the legislature. So if Coster continues in that vein, it will be very difficult for us to have any kind of a working relationship. But but my views on the state and what the state needs to accomplish are the same, no matter whether it's whether he's the governor or we get a Republican governor. And uh, if if he's vetoing legislation that I feel that we need, I'm going to be out front saying that this is wrong and we need to 
to, we need to talk to uh, to go to the governor and we need to push back. And, and the reason I mention that is, yeah, there's going to be a lot of issues that the, the, a Republican lieutenant governor and Coster disagree on. But Coster also holds a lot of views that are pretty much in line with Republicans on agriculture policy, on guns, on campaign finance, and, you know, even on a whole host of other issues. So maybe and even Unlike education, I haven't heard him draw a pretty firm line against school choice as Nixon has. So is it possible that maybe you guys can find common ground on some issues? I I always like to find common ground with people where I can. I've practiced law for a long time and been involved in politics for a long time. So between the two, uh, in those situations, you've got to be able to work with people who are are on the opposite side of the fence with you. Um, And so where we can... I, I want to do that. Now, uh, among the four ca- Republican candidates for governor, are, have you endorsed or are you leaning for, towards any of the four? No, I certainly have not in, endorsed anyone in, in the race. I'm focusing on, on my race. We've got four gubernatorial candidates uh, who are all out there. They're all working. Um, they are, they're working hard and getting around and meeting the voters and doing what they need to do and focusing on their race, and I'm doing the same. And then if you win the GOP primary, you will have to face a Democratic opponent. Um, Right now, there is a primary between former U.S. Representative Russ Carnahan and State Representative Tommy Pearson. Um, For the most part, uh, former Congressman Carnahan has raised significantly more money than Representative Pearson and is seen by many as the favorite in that contest, though I don't want to be a prognosticator and say, who will win because yeah, stranger because things have money, happened. Money is not always everything. But um, how do you think you would stack up against the Democratic candidate if you are the nominee? Oh, I think against Russ Carnahan, I'll stack up very well. And I think I'll stack up better than uh, my, my primary opponent. And for one, of course, Russ Carnahan has a record uh, in in Congress, and he has a record in Congress that I think is is counter to the views of a lot of Missourians, and we will certainly talk about those issues and and exploit them. Um, Also, right now, I think 2016 affords Republicans a real opportunity in this state uh, to grow the party and to offer a a different face, a fresh, young young face, and a, a new vision for the state. And that's what I'm offering. And you know, continue. now, now, does the fact that Trump's now the um, likely nominee, uh, there's been speculation on what that means for people further down the ballot. Uh, some say it's not good. Others say, yeah, it could be fine. Um, I, I'm interested in your in your thoughts about that. I don't see any reason to believe that that Donald Trump's nomination uh, as if he is the, the nominee for the Republican on the president's side, uh, I don't see any reason to think that it will it will help or hurt Republicans in this state. Uh, I just I don't I don't I think that people in Missouri are, are they're they're very used to to splitting their ticket anyway. I mean, the voters in this state will do that. Well, they have so, to because you can't you, they haven't been able to do straight ticket voting for 10 years. Well, but but you certainly but what I'm, what I'm saying is they certainly could just say, OK, well, we're just going to go down. And we're going to vote for every Democrat. Or we're going to go down. and We're mm-hmm. going to vote for every Republican. I certainly would like for them to go down and vote for all the Republicans. But my point is, 
I don't think that uh, that whether whoever the the Republican presidential nominee is, I don't think it will have uh, an impact in the, the state on the statewide offices because I think that people are are paying attention in this election cycle to what happens in in Missouri, uh, very much so. Yeah, and I'm of two minds here. One. Trump has a penchant for making very provocative statements that offend a wide group of people. But on the other hand, I haven't seen any polling that shows that anybody but a Republican is going to win Missouri. So you have this argumentation going on among Democrats saying, trying to tie Republican candidate X to Trump. Well, if Trump is going to win the state, then you're basically saying, do you support the candidate that is going to be supported by the majority of voters in the state? I'm not really sure that could would be that harmful to Republican candidates if that scenario plays out. What do you think about that? Right. Well, I no, I I think that that's very astute. Um, I think that that Missouri has become red. Uh, I think that that obviously there's still, still Democrats in the state, but in the the last uh, what's it the last two uh, presidential elections, Missouri has has gone for. The Republican. Um, I think McCain won Missouri by I think it was two points or something like I, oh, that. Oh, it was like several was, thousand votes, but um, yeah, but in percentage back, yeah. points. Uh, but but, but Romney, course, yeah, Romney won by almost ten percentage points, which is but, a landslide. But neither candidate though had um, any any coattails because most of the all of the statewide offices in in the state capital, except for one, are held by Democrats. Well, and and but again, I, I think that that then just proves my point that it it will not matter for for us whether the whether the, the nominee is Donald Trump or Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, but I guess Ted Cruz now not because he's <laughs> out. But uh, but that people people in Missouri, uh, I think, will vote for who who they have already decided to vote for, and on the you know in the presidential race, and then. Every other race, they will judge individually. Now, some people, um, and this isn't true in both parties, where candidates will show up at the presidential convention because they often have fundraisers or they meet other people there. Do you have any plans to go to Cleveland? I do not. Uh, my plan is to be in Missouri, working very hard in Missouri, trying to win over voters. That's that's what I've been doing for, I don't know, 14, 15 months or something like that by now. Uh, that's what I'm going to keep doing. Well, there's another thing about uh, your campaign that I think is notable. There's never been an African-American that's won statewide before. You have three candidates running statewide that I think could have be the first. You, Tommy Pearson, and Robin Smith running for Secretary of State. Um so there's a, there's a scenario where you could have two African-American candidates win a general election. But what do you think it would mean for the state if you were one of the, the first in that in that for that designation? I think it would be a tremendous for the state of Missouri. I think it would be um, I think it would be a big boom for us. Um, I don't believe that you ever vote for someone because they're a minority or because they're they're female. I don't think that's a reason you vote for someone. But I do think that that. Um, and as I've been saying to Republicans all over the state uh, for the last many months, uh, optics matter. And we are, we're always saying we're, you know, we're a big party, we're a big tent. Um, this is an opportunity also for us to show that I am a candidate with, and I've got a, a long background in, in law, I own my law, own law firm now. Uh, I've got a long background in, uh, in conservative politics and being out front on the issues and working extremely hard uh, to, to help push the state forward. So I've got all of that. And then as an, as an extra, being uh, relatively young, as 
you know, as politicians go, mm-hmm. uh, and then the ability to bring in more people. And, and at the end of the day, for me, the reason I got involved in politics, Missouri politics at all, was because I wanted to grow the party. So I do see part of uh, the benefit of me being elected to office is the, the ability to be able to do that. We've seen that in South Carolina with Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. Now, I know there's been some debate, I mean, for decades, but especially in recent years, about the fact that a large majority of African-Americans generally vote Democratic. I mean, it's not true of every, any individual, but when you look at the uh, the demographic group as a whole, it's large. It's like 80, 85, in some cases, 90 percent. Um there have been several, like yourself, though, Republicans who are African-American. Is there a reason why you think most African-Americans have continued to vote Democratic? And do you think that having more African-Americans who are Republicans sort of shows that, I mean, shows the demographic block that, look, you need to look elsewhere. It's not just Democrats. Well, there are a number of reasons uh, that that blacks have continued to vote for Democrats uh, throughout the years. Of course, the shift, the, the, the largest shift, I think, occurred in uh, right after the passage of the, the Civil Rights Act with, well, with, in conjunction with JFK and then the 64-65 Civil Rights Correct. Act. But, uh, but Democrats have, had a, have held a stranglehold uh, on, on the black community for uh, many decades now that's been very difficult to break. Uh, a, a lot of that, I think, has dealt with their, with just the, the negative messaging uh, that, that Republicans are, you know, hate black people and, ha- and just hate this group, hate that group. They hate you. They're out to get you. We're here to protect you. Um, and I think that people bought that line of thinking for quite a while, but they're starting to see, because I'm meeting with, mm-hmm. with people in the black community. I am going and speaking to, to groups uh, in, in Kansas City and St. Louis and even some in southeast Missouri, uh, because I think it's important for Republicans to do that. We cannot assume that just because this group has been voting Democrat for the last however many decades, that this group is foreclosed to us. They are not. And every voter matters. And you cannot just assume that they will not change. And I think that given what's happened in Missouri, uh, in Ferguson, and then, and then at the University of Missouri on the heels of that, voters are, are looking at, uh, at, at different options because the, the Republicans weren't in, in charge in the inner cities of St. Louis. The Democrats have been. Republicans haven't been in charge in Kansas City. Those have been Democrats. And so when I'm meeting with people, what they're saying is, well, those are the folks, the Democrats are the ones who have failed us. So, yes, we are telling people to look at the individual, to look at the individual candidate. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that just because I'm the the Republican nominee, I'm suddenly going to to get 50 percent of the black vote. But I think it will be a larger percentage mm-hmm. than, than any uh, other candidate. And I think also it's just very important for us to start to start somewhere. And we, we have to do that. I believe that has also been a big selling point for Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder, who has also put in an effort to go to St. Louis and Kansas City and connect with African-American groups there. Well, he hasn't won a majority, obviously. He points to elections where he got you know, 20% of the vote or 25% of the vote. And that may have made a difference in a close race. So if you can get around that or even higher, 
if it's a close race, it could make a difference potentially. Well, I think it certainly will, and particularly in St. Louis, because Russ, Russ Carnahan has issues, has had some problems with the black community uh, in St. Louis. I know that. I've yes. been meeting with people and, 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 and talking with them, and, and I've had a number of people who have said to me privately, you come out of the primary and, and you are the Republican nominee, we'll do everything we possibly can to help you get elected. So. I take them at the word. I believe them, um, and and that's why I think it's important for uh, for us to to make sure that that we're doing us meaning my campaign to make sure we're working very hard and we're outworking everyone and we're doing everything we possibly can to make sure I'm the nominee. Now, when you travel around the state and you talk to voters, what do they cite as the biggest issue, either facing them or facing the state? Usually. Um, well, it's a couple of things. Uh, one thing is uh, the intrusions by the federal government, and people are just very upset about that. Are um, you talking about regulations or other things? Uh, they they mean all sorts of things. Uh, the regulatory environment. Uh, they mean the federal government coming down and, and and dictating what what the states have to do with respect to to health care and and every other area because uh, the the Affordable Care Act has affected every single person uh, in, in the country. So they mean it just broadly, that the federal government has gotten way too big and has been telling the states what to do. And, and, and the states then, uh, that means them individually because it affects us, it affects all of us. And the other thing uh, that, that people talk about more than any, any other uh, besides that is uh, our, our economy. And that they're worried that, that Missouri's economy is gonna continue to falter uh, and that there won't be jobs for, for their children and their grandchildren. So people are just worried. They're, they're worried that we won't, that we're not doing the things that we need to do to get on track. And uh, that was particularly the case during the right to work debates. But, but people are just concerned that, they're, that they're, the money and the, the resources uh, will not be here to encourage their, their children and their grandchildren to stay in Missouri and raise their family. Yes, so we should be clear on that. You are in favor of right to work. Correct? I am very much in favor of right to work. I, I, I don't think we have a statewide candidate that's a Republican that's against it at this point, even though there are many Republican legislators who are opposed to it. So I think that just kind of shows the, the lay of the land there. Um, but we're out of time. We want to thank you for coming on our show. We'll be following your race with great interest. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how can we follow you on Twitter? Uh, I'm uh, at Bev4LG. And is, is it four spelled out or four with a number? Uh, B-E-V-F-O-R-L-G. It's important to make that distinction, obviously. And do you have a Facebook site as well? I do. Um, uh, it, it's the same uh, Facebook, and my, my website is, uh, is www.bev4lg.com. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. So long.